forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, what I'm going to do is is go around and ask you to introduce yourselves on your microphone, so the listener knows what you sound like. Tell us who you are and where they may have seen your name on their television or movie screen. Hi, my name is Marion Dare. I have worked on Better Call Saul, um, The Act, Sean Taram, and Marvel's upcoming Echo. Thank you very much. When, uh, this this comes out like a, in a week or two. When does Echo premiere? That will be probably a year from when this comes out. Oh, are you kidding? I thought it was like within months. Jeez, I'm sorry. You And I think you did the show uh, three years ago. Perfect. Yeah, um, pretty much. Hey, uh, I'm Rebecca Adelman. I have worked on shows like Dead to Me and Love and New Girl and uh, Paramount Plus's Guilty Party. Uh, yeah. Hey, I'm Abdi Nazemian. I have worked on The Village, Almost Family, and Ordinary Joe, and I also do some feature work and write novels as well. Important thing to talk about, which we will get into. Hi, I'm Ami Bogani, and I have worked on um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist um, and more and some novels stuff which we can talk about later, but, uh, and more recently, uh, Alma's Way on PBS Kids and a couple of DreamWorks shows that I am not yet allowed to talk about, but yeah, fair. I'm at DreamWorks right now. <laughs> Great. Um, I think something that was really interesting as I was looking at, um, how you all came up in the business. No, no two of you have come up the same way which I think is really neat and I think is a great lesson for folks who are breaking in these days. So let's get some origin stories. Um, you know, we can keep them somewhat brief and sort of keep it to the the takeaways. But it sounds like the main thing that everyone was doing was doing something themselves um, and sort of learning the craft and then finding their way into the business. So Rebecca, I'd like to start mm -hmm. with you. Um, tell us about your background and, and how you first got started in this industry. Sure. Well, I always like to start by saying I'm Canadian. I feel like it's a very, very important piece. None but no, I, I, yeah, exactly. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, uh -huh. very far away from the entertainment industry, had zero people in my life that did anything like this, which I think is, you know, worth mentioning because it was a confounding, mysterious line of work, um, not an impossible, you know, field to break into should you have the wherewithal and, you know, really feel like you have to do it. And I had always been a writer, just writing, writing various things as a kid, but it wasn't until I, I locked into comedy specifically. So I'd also always loved comedy and it, it hit me at a certain point in my early twenties that being someone who, who, who made people laugh and who either wrote comedy or performed comedy wasn't, I thought it was just like handed down to you by God or something. It was just something you were like anointed, you were born that way. And then it, it hit me that no, no, it's a choice. You choose to go out there and and work at it and get better at it and um, and and yeah, learn the craft and and see if you can do it. Uh, so so that really kind of altered my my path, and I began. I had a day job after university. I was uh, 
a journalist, like a baby journalist and a copy editor for one of Canada's top, like Newsweekly magazines, like Canada's version of Newsweek or Time. Okay. Uh, it's called McLean's. And at night I was, you know, doing sketches and weird characters and weird bits and finding my sort of comedy tribe in Toronto. And every night, it was just every single night, you had to get up on stage and do something new and try something new and just make your, you know, 20 friends laugh, the same 20 people <laughs> over and over and over again. And in a way, it felt high stakes, but it was entirely low pressure because there were zero people who could give you a job <laughs> paying attention. Um, and I, I'm really grateful for those years of sort of cutting my teeth by performing my own comedy. Uh, moved to LA with, you know, $300 and uh, no visa sort of crossed the border without owning up to what I was hoping to do <laughs> and wound up getting a visa. I do live here legally now and, and, and got a green card and did, did that whole, like the whole immigration thing. Um, and was just down here. I was just plugging away, writing pilots, writing, writing, writing. I'd had a few jobs in Canada on Canadian TV shows a sketch a sketch show and then a sitcom um so so yeah. let me let me dig in on on this sort of transition period for sure. you so you were doing stand up you were performing you were writing your own material you were writing yeah. sketches how did that start to translate to writing for other people well oh, that's a great question i mean what it did was it created this community you know and within the community we did start to to write for one another. Down here in LA, it was a little more formalized where the community was a little more um, yeah, discipline oriented. So I was doing the UCB and doing some of their house teams. And on those teams, you couldn't be a writer and a performer. You had to choose. So I was writing hmm. and I was writing for the actors on my team, you know, and we were constantly putting on shows. So that was helpful. But I also was always, 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 I just knew, I just had a thing. I, I, I loved writing half hour. I loved, I loved the sitcom. It was the thing that made me fall in love with television. And so I was daily, you know, just trying to write as many pilots as I could, even though nobody cared at that time. <laughs> so it was really a, a period of, it was a transitional period. It was a period of like, you know, um, poverty and, and, and struggle and question, questioning yourself, but, but having to persevere. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and then after a few, a few different jobs, like an adult swim job and, and writing on a few shows, it was really the new girl. It was sort of landing that new girl gig, right. Mm-hmm. And sort of being welcomed into the world of broadcast, you know, half hour writers and like a big writer's room that, that shifted the trajectory of my writing career. Yeah. Um, Let's, and I want to pick up on some of that earlier stuff in a minute, but um, Ami, let's, let's talk about uh, your early going. Am I, am I correct that you sort of came up on the assistant route or you were Mm -hmm. assisting? Uh, Tell us about that. Um, Yeah. So I, um, well, I'm from Massachusetts and my parents are Indian immigrants just to uh, start that part out. And I also didn't have like my, my dad, especially was a really big, is a really big film nerd. And he was like, had me watching Stanley Kubrick movies when I was seven onwards. And I'd never seen like a Bollywood movie until I was a teenager. Not that I have anything against them, but it it just wasn't what I had learned. Um, And then I went to college for film and then I kind of moved to New York and 
I had no, con even after studying film at a prestigious university, I had zero contacts. And I kind of was like volunteering and working and trying to make my way and managed to get a job um, working for Mira Nair, who at the time was like my idol because she just made Monsoon Wedding. Um, and I, it was like, it was like one of those moments where like when I had my interview with her, I was like, this isn't really happening. I never thought I would actually get the job because I was like, you know, a kid, but I did. And then I actually, I worked for her for 10 years. And one of the projects I worked on there was Shantaram in 2006, a very long time ago, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I worked for her for 10 years and then, um, let me, let me interrupt for just yeah. one sec. Yeah. Um, how did you, so this was like early 2000s. How did yeah, you, how did you hear about that job in the first place? So I was, I had been writing to her office <laughs> since like college. Um, and I'd never like heard anything. It was like months and wedding had come out. I'm sure they were like inundated with kids like me, but um, I was just like volunteering at a bunch of stuff. I was also, I mean, I like had to make a living. So I was working and I was volunteering and there was an Indian film festival and I was a volunteer to like tear tickets at it. And um, I, so I was just on their mailing list and one of her assistants quit. And I was like, I have written this essay about how much you have impacted my life. <laughs> it's already ready to go. And I sent it over and that was that. Was that. Gotcha. So it was kind of a combo of like luck and stalking. <laughs> um, and so when you came in as an assistant there, what, kind, what was your relationship to writing at the time and what kind of reading were you doing also for them? Um, it was like, so our company was, it was super small. It was, um, first I was her assistant and then like, I kind of worked my way up and there was never more than two or three of us at a time. So I was kind of involved in the filmmaking process from every single level. Like I didn't understand, I only moved to LA five years ago, but, um, I was really kind of late to understanding like the Hollywood system of it all. Cause it was very, it was a time when like indie film was pretty big in New York and that was my whole world. And we worked internationally a lot. So um, and Mira wasn't really into like, like she wanted to like develop and make her own stuff. So, um, it wasn't like a ton of like reading scripts or developing stuff. It was like working on the things that she wanted to work on and, you know, kind of being a part of the creative process. And I was on set a lot and I, you know, learned how to make budgets and I learned how to, you know, make movies, yeah. which was, yeah, very cool. And were you writing on your own at the time? I mean, I would like to say that I was, and I certainly wanted to, but to be honest, I was drinking a lot. That's <laughs> <nice>. like, <laughs> I just didn't have like the creative headspace, honestly. And then, um, and I was like in my twenties in sure. New York. So, um, but I, I think I like really, like I really started writing more. We used to have this, um, filmmakers training program. She lived every summer, she would go to East Africa because she lived there and um, her husband is from Uganda. And so she was like training filmmakers there. And I would like sit in on these, um, on these like sessions, which you would bring like friends and mentors over to teach young East Africans. And I really like kind of started doing it there because I've always wanted to be a writer. I always like wanted to do it. I just didn't have the discipline, honestly, when I was that young. Like I just, to be really honest with you, like I did it in college. I made my short films and then the job really took over my entire universe. Um, but yeah, and then when I worked on Shantaram and then on Reluctant Fundamentalist, I got more involved in the writing process with Mira. And um, after that, I was, after I wrote uh, Reluctant Fundamentalist, it was like, okay, I think this is like the thing I want to do. Cause I was doing a lot of production too, which I also love, but it was like, it's time to focus on one thing. And I really 
this is, you know, this is my calling and that's, that's where I'm going. Gotcha. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll pick up there when we come back around. Um, Marion, let's talk about how you got into this business. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, I had a journalist job like Rebecca. I was in Nebraska and I was a journalist for the railroads. They have their own newspaper. <laughs> so I was a, a journalist for Union Pacific and Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And that was a lot of fun for a while in my early 20s. And then it just like wasn't, you know, it wasn't itching that uh, creative um, yeah. creative itch that I had. So hold I on packed up second. my grand dam. And, hold on, yeah. hold on. What do you write about as a railroad journalist? Yes, I didn't know either. I When I took the job, there was an ad in the newspaper that was like, do you like to write? Do you like to travel? Do you like to have fun? There was nothing in there about the railroad. So I went in for the job and had never like been close to a train before. But you write about track projects and new hires and um, hobbies that people have, safety measures that are um, that are happening. Big Amazing. storms on the on the Gulf Coast. Um, a lot going on in the railroad world. Um, of these hobbies, how much? How many of them were miniature train sets? <laughs> a lot like a of lot them of actually are model cars, though. They, <laughs> they do like vehicles. A lot of them yeah. are um, do love the vehicles. But that's great. Um, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I, I had to. I had to hear about that. <laughs> Yeah, happy. I love. I you know. I I, I could pull out some old uh, newsletters and we can <laughs> uh, pour over them sometime. But yeah, when I when I uh, decided to come out to LA, I packed up my Grand Am. I also didn't know anybody here. Um, I drove out. I didn't have any money. Um, I I got a job nannying and uh, I worked at Victoria's Secret in Westwood. Um, and then I I sort of made a short list of people that I just like. I really wanted to be around to learn uh film writing from and one of them was laura ziskin and she had um uh, a company at sony um with an overall there so i you know i sort of just called them again and again until they let me come in for an internship um and so i started reading scripts for the director of development uh they appreciated that i could drive a stick shift because laura had a a little sports car so i, I went to go get her pick up her lunch um and, you know, did a lot of work that uh, felt sort of like a step down from where I had been working. You know, it's a journalism mm -hmm. job. You have like a, an expense account and a, somebody booking your travel. And now I'm like picking brads out of the recycle bin, you know, to put them in the correct spot. Um, but I just I really learned a lot there. And um, did you just through my even as you felt like that was a step down, did it feel like you were on the right path towards what you wanted to be doing? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It, I guess it felt like a step down in terms of like, you know, I, you know, I wasn't getting paid and yeah. I, I had the title and I was making the coffee now, but I was yeah. really happy to be doing it because it was so, I mean, it was just so exciting to walk onto the Sony lot, like girl from Nebraska that had no idea that it could be like this. And, um, after a little while, uh, Sasha Mervin, the director of development, started forwarding jobs to me that she would that would come across her desk. Um, and I applied for a, a lot of those and didn't ever hear back. And then one of them was um, uh, a showrunner's assistant job for Joey Soloway, and they were working on United States of Terra um, at the time. So I became a showrunner's assistant for a year and a half um, on that show and how to make it in America. 
Um, and from there, I went to work for Jeff Garland, who was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then the Goldbergs. Um, I got my master's while I was working full time uh, over at UCLA for screenwriting. I just knew I needed to be a better writer uh, hmm. to sort of try to take on some of the ideas that I had. Um, and about the time I finished the master's program, uh, Better Call Saul started up. And back when I moved to L.A., Vince Gilligan had been one of those people on the list with uh, Laura Ziskin. So, you know, um, sort of all the work and right place and right time, I was able to get in uh, to that room as the writer's assistant for season one and worked uh, my way up from there. Gotcha. Um, that's really interesting. And I, and I want to talk about the uh, master's program when we, when we come back around. I think there's, there's some, something to discuss in there. Abdi, uh, did you start out as a prose writer or did that come? No, <clears throat> no, yeah, I didn't that... start out as a writer at all. Um, I mean, <laughs> really? I was born, I, I, well, no, I was born in Iran. I moved a lot. I am Canadian too. And quite proud of it. Oh, um, okay. Yes. From, you know, Iran <laughs> to France to Canada where we eventually got citizenship somewhere and then to America. But, um, you know, growing up for me, writing and the arts were not a viable career. It wasn't something I considered, but I was just one of those kids who was obsessed with movies. Like when we moved to America at 10, all I did, I, I didn't fit in and I would just come home and watch every movie ever made. Honestly, I was just obsessed with film. And so I moved here largely. My last internship in college was for Alan Pakula, the filmmaker, which really dates me because it was right before he died. <laughs> um, and, um, and my boss there, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, but my boss there told me, if you really want to work in this industry, just get a one-way ticket to L.A. And that's what I did. And it was, you know, it was kind of pre-internet. So, I mean, I, I suppose there was some form of internet, but it was back when you had to get your hands on the UTA job list, but you had to know someone to get it. And um, <laughs> I remember one day my old boss from New York called and she said, you know, I found someone at UTA to get it for you. And so my best friend and I, who I moved here with, waited in the lobby of UTA while some assistant ran down these pages. <laughs> and um, I applied for every job. I mean, it was like 200 something assistant jobs, thinking I would work my way up to being some kind of executive, you know, some kind of businessy job that felt Iranian. And, um, <laughs> and I had a pretty impressive resume for, for a college student. I was constantly working in college and I only got two interviews. One was for a religious TV channel that is no longer around. And one was as the assistant to an MOW movie of the week producer, which is the job I ended up taking. And um, all I did honestly was answer phones and read scripts. And it was in the mm -hmm. process of reading all these scripts that I kind of figured out this might be my place in the industry. I just knew I wanted to work in this industry. That's it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know in what capacity. I didn't know what jobs were available, what people actually did. And um, That's so the more scripts I read, the more I felt like that was my path. And it eventually became it. Yeah. How funny were you? What kind of creative were you as a kid outside of like not seeing this as a career path necessarily, but did you, did you write? Did you, you know, perform? Did you draw? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wrote, I acted, I did a summer at Lee Strasberg, which convinced me I never wanted to be an actor again. I did a lot. <laughs> 
I did a lot of comedy. Um, I did improv. I did UCB okay. when I came out here. I think improv is great for all writers. I always tell young writers to do improv because writing is improv. You have to never be stuck. Um, so yeah, I was a very creative person, but again, like it wasn't something that I thought could be a career. Sure. And, you know, midway, we could talk about this too, but midway through my career between kind of the phase where I was solely a feature writer and then the phase where I became a novelist and a TV writer, I went to, I had two kids and went to business school. Because again, I mean, even really? it was like post, yeah, because it was post writer strike and the whole industry had changed kind of, it was pre the streaming boom, but post recession and st- strike. And I felt like, how am I going to raise two kids? And you know, I don't, I don't regret going to business school. In a way, it was in that phase that I became more entrepreneurial about writing. And I also started mm-hmm. producing films. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think there's always that voice inside of me that's like, what are you doing thinking that creativity is a, is a <laughs> career that you can rely on? But you still, it's funny, you still had this thing, which I think so many people do, even if it's a little directionless of like, I want to run off and join the circus, but I don't know in what capacity. Right. Um, So when you did discover that maybe it's through writing, through reading all these scripts, like maybe I could do this. How did you even get started? Well, I had a friend who was a playwright and I called, he was getting his MFA and I called him and I said, do you want to write a screenplay on the weekends? (laughs) Because I feel like I I know a little bit about this business. And then, you know, I I think for a lot of people I've heard this, it's a lot of persistence. You have to have that but it's also a lot of luck and in my Mm -hmm. case the luck was that I just happened to have one of my closest friends in high school happened to have some early success as an actress and she was also you know moved to LA with us we were kind of part of the same generation of of people who moved here and when I wrote that first script she basically gave it to her manager Hmm. to get advice not thinking that that manager would end up signing us Um, and that started the whole chain of events that that became a career. So, you know, there was a lot of work that went into it. And then that timing was crucial because again, I I didn't think think it could be a career. Right. Um, But, but I think you bring up an interesting point too, which, which everyone sort of touched on, like nobody does this alone, right? Like there's, there's networking without networking, which is sort of, you join a community, you know, you, you had this friend who was in a position to help. You weren't looking for anything other than, like pass this on and and like Rebecca you know mm-hmm. you came up with this group of people who needed a writer and you were that writer <laughs> mm-hmm. you know um like I think that's it's an important thing especially for new writers especially for people new to mm-hmm. Los Angeles that like I, there's yeah. one thing about networking with showrunners and and people like that but there's a whole other and more valuable thing about networking with your peers yeah and I think especially it for me at least it really helped me kind of it's electrifying, right? If this is your passion and this is what you actually, because a creative profession is this, it's this uncomfortable alliance of, yeah, you are, you need to make money. You want to be quote unquote successful and keep the, the lights on, but you're also driven by a, this, you know, this other thing, this uh, creative need. So I think the more you can be around people that, that help clarify that for you and help keep that alive. Like I, I know that was sort of instrumental on, for me and it makes, it makes you better. <laughs> it just like makes you a better yeah, writer. To... Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm done. Yeah. 
Um, no, I was just going to say that what Abdi said about how, so after I left Mira, I had like a really big gap of like not working that much. And um, I also had, I got married and I had a kid in the middle of that. And I was in New York where it just didn't feel like there was a ton of community until I joined this writer's group. And it was at that time, like I'd been dropped by my first manager when I told him that I was having a baby. <sighs> he like ghosted me, like never, it was like, yeah. what time should we meet? I'm going to be in LA. And he was like, cool. My assistant will set something up. Never heard from him again. And I know he's not dead because I checked. I was like, there are kids. Could people do this? He's not dead, I swear. But anyway, but like, so I was really at a low point. I was like, this is not a career that's viable. And I'm pregnant. And like, my husband is a, you know, my husband was a music journalist and a music critic at the time. And it was like, we need money, you know? And so I was tutoring this billionaire family who lived in Trump Tower. <laughs> I was like doing all these things. I was like, I'm taking jobs that are going to make me a better writer, but that give me time to write. So I was also like working as a hostess at Babo at Mario Vitale's restaurant. And I was like almost 30 and everybody else was like four. And I was just like, this sucks, you know? But like, then I joined this writer's group and they were all playwrights. And I was kind of at the point, I was like, I have nothing to lose. Like, I know this is what I want to do. Not, I'm not going anywhere. I might as well just write the shit that I want to write. And the samples that I wrote with that group while my while I was pregnant, while my daughter was a newborn, like those are the samples that when I moved to LA were the samples that got me my manager and, you know, all of that stuff. Because they were, the, it was like the writing that I didn't like need, ask for permission to do in a weird way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you're waiting for somebody to be like, yeah, do that like you're waiting to get a job. And I, I felt like I'd had this feature job under my belt. I was like, oh, it's going to be easy from here on out. And it wasn't. And those people are like still my creative family. You know, like I, we, and it's, we've been together for seven years and there's just like, everybody has their career ups and downs and you just kind of keep the appointment is what we always say is like to kind of go through it all. And that's just like such a vital part of this insane world. Absolutely. While we're on the subject, I, I want, and, you all may not have insights on this, but I get asked a lot about like, how do I find a writer's group? How do I find my people? Does anyone have advice on that? I mean, it's just your friends though. Like uh, some of us at least were not that, like I think there were two of us who had had like a bunch of experience in, you know, and a lot of like, there's so much information out there. Like, especially in LA, like so many people just want to do it. It's just a matter of like finding a group of people you feel safe with. And um, I also think it's cool to do like if you do like a creative group, like say you have a friend who like makes jewelry and a friend who does like you can get together and just have that time to like update each other on the process, like the progress of your projects. It doesn't necessarily have to be writing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And there's something that when I hear writer's group, that sounds like big and intimidating to me where I'm like, I don't even know if I count myself, <laughs> if, I, if I could like walk into one of those rooms. But if you find if it's a, a, a specific, if you, if you narrow it down a little bit where it's like, okay, well, I love sketch writing and maybe you could find sure. your sketch writing, like, you know, brotherhood, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also no, don't, I, I don't think, find that <laughs> i think finding organic um like just finding organic ways to create community around your writing i mean when yeah. i don't do this anymore but when i was younger we would always do um script readings when i had a new mm -hmm. script you know we'd invite actor friends or writer friends everybody would read it and you'd feed them and people would hopefully laugh or have interesting things to say but it would give a sense of of community so mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's great um, do you all have, even even today, as you are, you know, professional writers, do you have first readers? 
Who are your first readers uh, and what do you expect from them? Uh, Marion, let's start with you on that. Yeah, I actually, so one of my first readers is somebody who's not a writer um, because I want to get, um, I want to get a sense of like how things are feeling to somebody who doesn't really isn't looking at act breaks and doesn't mm -hmm. really know about um, how, how long a monologue should feel or not like, but does the, does the essence of the, um, is the essence of the idea working or not? So I have somebody who's a non-writer in the in my first reads, and then I have a couple really close friends that I've picked up along the way. Uh, a writer from the Sundance Lab that I met early on, and then um, somebody from a job along the way. So just like it's not a writing group where we all know each other, but I have three people that that I'll send a script to before. I, I never send a first draft uh, to no. where it's supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. By the time a first draft goes out to the studio or network, that's that's a third or fourth draft. Absolutely. Um, what about the rest of you? Uh, first readers? Anyone who wants to jump in? Yeah. My writer's group. Is it? Still that same group? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We still meet every uh, two Sundays. That's great. So, yeah, that is yeah. great. And how many people we are practice in pitches too? Uh, there's like seven of us okay. now. We were all in New York um, in person, but then now I'm here, and one of us is in um, Boston. One of us is in Australia. And um, but yeah, and sometimes like if we're practicing pitches, we'll just be like, "Hey, can people jump on so I can practice so I can practice my pitch before I do it?" And anybody who's available, like, will jump on. Yeah. That's great. I'm hearing that kind of thing more and more often. And and I just joined a group like that, which was just mm -hmm. like a bunch of professional writers who said, we need to have this. We're not in rooms anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like orders are shorter. So we're not getting to know people as well. So mm -hmm. let's find a group of friends or like minded humans who can do exactly that. Like, give me notes, jump on last minute to hear a pitch, that kind of thing. I think it's great. Um, yeah. Rebecca, who yeah. are your first readers? Oh, always my very first reader is actually my husband. He <laughs> Is he a writer? Or he's no? a writer and a director. He's a filmmaker. Um, so, and, and, and it's vice versa. So I, I will read his mm -hmm. things and we kind of will do our own like little mini rooms at home. <laughs> yep. And I feel like I can actually be quite honest with him. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I like to call it honest and not hurtful. But, um, well, I mean, that's you know, the kind of notes painful. that everyone wants to give and receive. Yeah. Right? And I think yeah. by, with the same, I really trust his opinion. I, he's not afraid to tell me if he doesn't, if he hates something, you know, if it's not working. Um, so that's a really valuable read. He actually reads at every stage. So, mm -hmm. but, but wow. I, I do think the, the, the read quality diminishes, not, not for him, not from him, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's always good to get like different people reading different drafts, mm -hmm. you know, so they get a, a fresh read on draft three from someone else. So I try not to burn all my reads on, on first draft. So I'll go to my husband. I, I use my manager. I've been with her for like 12 years That's and great. you know, I, I, I I love her and, and really trust her opinion. And then there's, and then I kind of pick and choose, like, do I want this person to read at this stage or do I want to rewrite it now with those, the first batch of notes I've gotten and then send it to, you know, um, a good friend and producer. She produced my movie. I, uh, uh, that I that I directed a few years ago mm -hmm. and, you know, like certain people you pick up along the way, but Marion, I am impressed that you give to like a non writer or someone who's outside the industry. It sounded like, because I'm always skeptical that like will it be the the right kind of read you know like will they will they read well, all the the will they the, but i think it's really a good idea 
I'm like, yeah. well, you know, maybe it's for self-preservation because they don't, they're not as brutal maybe <laughs> as right. ones, it'll be honest. but no, it is really helpful for them to be like, I don't know, something like in this one part where these two people right. are fighting, like it just isn't feeling well to me. And then I usually back up like two scenes before and come in and I'm like, if, if they're feeling a bump, I just want to know where the bumps are and then what's really working yeah. for you. And this person also will be like, yeah, this, this thing that's supposed to be funny, it's not funny. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's yeah. To work on too. Yeah. It's super helpful. Cause you don't always want people to like give you the diet, like to give you the, the actual, they want you want them to diagnose it in a way, but not like yeah. prescribe and tell you exactly how to fix right. it. You just want that general idea of like something's maybe off. And then I, yeah. I guess the, yeah, those sort of fresh eyes are good. For and that. I think, yeah, I mean, I, my first read is my wife who is also mm-hmm. not a writer, not in the industry. And, and it's for the same kind of thing that I'm looking for, right? Like, is this understandable? Mm-hmm. What sticks out to you? What do you want to see more of? What, what doesn't work? Um, sort of those bigger picture kind mm-hmm. of things. And then like, what's the scene that, you know, that bumps. I think that's, these are great things to look for from a first reader who doesn't have to be a professional writer. Um, Abdi, what about you? You have, you have first readers? Um, I, I wouldn't say I have the same first reader for everything outside of, you know, my husband, obviously I show everything too. Um, I, I will say one thing I've learned through many, many years of doing this is through trial and error, you discover which friends can give you notes because a lot of friends just want to be cheerleaders <laughs> and that's not what yeah. you want. Um, but often, and a lot of I friends want to do it. the opposite. Yeah, and some friends want to do the opposite, <laughs> and those are not friends. So eventually, yeah, yeah. they probably <laughs> will exit your life. But um, no, I mean, it, a lot of times with different projects, I will find a friend who feels like they're the audience for what I'm doing. I mean, that's hmm. that's something I do often. Or if it's something that requires their expertise, like. I just wrote a project that a lot of it takes place in modern Iran and I have a cousin who spent most of her life there. So she was my first reader because she's giving me feedback based on her experience. It's helping me develop the material. And I'll do that a lot with different projects. If I'm writing something that I need that research help with, and I have a friend who's willing to do that. Um, Outside of that, it's really my agents, you know, both in film and TV and in with literary stuff. I do trust my agents to, you know, I think you have to find an agent that gets you and wants the best out of you, but I trust them to guide what I'm doing and to to know what I'm missing in terms of what it's meant to be. Uh, how did you find your agents? And how long have you been with these agents? Um... I've been with these agents. I'm so bad with time. Sometimes I forget my own age. I'm not. It's 2012 Um, right now. (laughs) Oh, good. Thank God. Thank God. Because I heard the 2020s are awful. Um, Oh, yeah. I found these. I found the film and TV agents I'm currently with through my last literary agents. I've been doing this quite a long time and I've had many agents in both sides of my career. But um, But, and that happens. We should say like that's not. Yeah. You know, that's not unusual. You find you, as you said before, like you find the person that you click with and that who clicks with you and that you can trust. Yeah. And also you out, you know, relationships sometimes evolve. Industries change your, what you yeah. want to do changes, what agents, you know, sometimes your agent becomes too big for you or you, you change your interest. There's, there's different reasons to move around, but in terms of agencies, it's always been very amicable for me as I've hopped around. So I think I've been with these agents almost a 
decade, but it could right. be less. Um, how how did you get your first agent? Through the manager that, so my actress friend helped us find managers oh, okay. and they helped with the agents. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I think, but, I mean, that's, that's how it was for me too. Like it's not, that seems like a pretty standard kind of practice, finding one through the other. It's the number one question I get asked by young people is how to get an agent and the hardest one to answer. Yeah, well, I actually, let's talk oh, about sorry, it. Sorry, God. Yeah. Um, I actually get that question a lot too. And I also have to say that I love talking to young people about this stuff because I felt like it was very gatekept for me when I started. And we didn't have a lot of these resources. And even the college I went to didn't really help in that sense. Well, like this podcast didn't gave exist. Me a contract. <laughs> this podcast did not exist. You could have saved me a lot of therapy. <laughs> and um, But, you know, it's like... When I found my first, when my first manager signed me, it felt like this huge deal. And I was like, this is it, you know, I'm coming for you. And it wasn't like that at all. Like he didn't really return my calls. Like it wasn't, you know, and, and, and I, I think I lost a lot of like writing time in like stressing about that. Um, because it, it was like, felt like, oh, I have to have this permission, right? Like mm -hmm. I was just waiting for somebody to be like, oh, now it's time to get hired and do things. And, uh, and I kind of have realized that like, when I talk to young writers, it's like, just write your shit, you know, like write your shit, you know, get it in a really good place. And then, you know, the, the managers and the agents will come like, it, it feels like such a, for a lot of people. And I know I've been there, like, it feels like this very big deal that you have to do it to get your foot in the door. Um, but if you don't have like great writing to share, they also can't help you if you don't have like a piece of work that really represents who you are and what you want to do and what you want to say. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And you mentioned something I want to pick up on in a moment, um, which is about managing your reps. Um, but Rebecca, how did you get your first uh, reps? Well, just as everyone was talking, I, my memory was jogged that my very first manager <laughs> When I'd first moved to LA, I, you know, it was like, again, just hustling, hustling, looking for any opportunity. And there was some kind of award. It was for the Washington, Washington DC Comedy Festival. And there was a script writing award. They're like, hey, send in your script. This wasn't a big festival. I hope, I, I don't even think it exists anymore. Uh, uh, so I can speak truthfully, but I, I sent in my, and they said the, the winner of the script writing award will get a manager you know, this LA company, I can't even remember the name. And I might've been the only person who submitted a script. I won, I, I won the award. I flew out to Washington, DC. I just, just like you on me, I was like, yes, you know, I was like, fuck yeah. Like I've got a manager now. <laughs> this guy was maybe 19. And <laughs> when it was came time to actually meet him, I remember I was getting ready to go meet him somewhere. And he called and said, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you because I have to euthanize my puppy. Oh, God. <laughs> and I remember feeling like, okay, I <laughs> if this is an excuse, it's like <laughs> the worst excuse. So uh, for reasons I can't even remember, that didn't work out. Uh, and I wound up honestly getting my manager, who I am still with, in part like through a my first agent who I'm not with anymore and who happened to be like an old family friend and a sweet guy, but I think he took me on, um, at the goodness of his heart. And he introduced me to my manager who I stayed with. And I actually had to leave that agent who was an old family friend 
because I wasn't getting any work. I wasn't getting any meetings. Staffing, uh, you know, we used to have these things called staffing season. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. <laughs> heard of Remember, it was like every April, you know, like panic, yeah. panic would set in. You'd be like, "These, it's the only time you can get meetings. And then uh, otherwise all the shows are staffed. And I, well, I think I went through two staffing seasons with zero meetings and with, with, with this first agent. Yeah. And as soon as I left and I got an agent at CAA, uh, this first agent was not with one of like the quote unquote mm-hmm. big three or whatever. As soon as I was at CAA, the exact same script, nothing changed. Basically two weeks later, I had a meeting at New Girl. Yeah. And, you know, so... Yeah. Sadly, I tell this to young people all the time because it is the number one question. I mean, I don't know how to tell you how to get an agent. I, it's it's a stroke of luck. It's timing. It's having the work ready and prepped. And but there's just sometimes you need the right person to open the other door for you. Absolutely. You know, and it turns out at a place like New Girl, because of where the showrunners there were repped, they would only read. You're inundated when you're a showrunner. You are inundated with submissions. And you are only going to read the ones that your agent, who you trust, says to you, hey, read these five, please read these eight. You go, okay, I'll read them, you know, otherwise they're just not getting read. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, as you say, like a showrunner is inundated. They want someone they can trust telling them to like elevate these scripts, guide these at the top, guiding them because your time, anything, yeah, is so, so you know, squashed, you have zero time. So yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, Marianne, at what point did you get your first reps? I got my, so I got my manager actually before I had a writing sample that was appropriate to give, uh, give him. I was in a pitch class my first semester at UCLA and one of my uh, classmates was an assistant at this management company and was like, I really like that pitch. Would you come in and do it for one of the managers? And so I went into the management company and uh, completely blew the pitch. I was so nervous and sweaty (laughs) and like did not understand that writers need Mm -hmm. to perform ever. And um, I asked for another chance. Like I can do better. Can, you know, I'm, I'm in the sketch comedy group. Can you come like to one of my shows and check it out? And so he came and um, I, I went on, he luckily gave me, gave me a second chance and I've been with him ever since. So I've been with him since 2012 um, my agents came on board in 2014, um, my first season when I was a writer's assistant on Better Call Saul. And um, we were talking about networking earlier, which is terrifying to me. Like I'm not, there's, there are a few things scarier than going to one of those parties and like making eye contact with people. And then they're looking above you to see who's there. And I never know how close to stand to people and whose turn it is to talk or anything. But I, I do know that I'm glad you brought up like uh, the community with your, with your colleagues and your fellows, because when I became an assistant on better call Saul, there were four other assistants in on the show. And often you there's, there can be uh, a climate of like, um, competition Mm -hmm. you know like one person's success equals my failure and and we didn't have that there it was um instead of networking i started to ask how can i help Mm -hmm. how can i help Mm -hmm. 
with yeah. whatever you're working on. How can I help with your workload? Um, I noticed you have a lot going on and um, the script coordinator gave me um, some sides to write, sides are the casting scenes that we use for um, characters in season one. So I wrote um, quite a few of those uh, casting scenes first season and um, WME was reading them for um, for some of their actors and because they covered the show and a, a couple of them reached out to me um, oh, said wow. we, we read these scenes we really like them would you be interested in and I'm still with that agent as well that's so great I've never heard of anyone getting an agent off of sides I love I that that's really <laughs> cool <laughs> there, and there was I mean I have to assume because they've been really good about this throughout the run of both Breaking Bad and Saul, like Vince and Peter must have known that you, your goal was to write. Yes, absolutely. They were, yeah, they were very supportive. And then, you know, the, the, I think one of the mistakes you might make as an early assistant is say, read my stuff (laughs) too soon. But, um, and I didn't, I didn't do that, but um, I did get opportunities to write casting scenes and anything that was in the show. Like if you saw a newspaper on screen with an article in that newspaper, Mm -hmm. I often wrote that prop doc. Um, I, um, I was able to go to the Sundance writers lab first uh, my first year there on salt. And they gave me, you know, five days off of work to go um, to go out to Sundance and, you know, take the first five days I ever had just to focus only on my writing. And that was pretty amazing. So I was very lucky to have, supportive people around me that's phenomenal um i i i mean you touched you touched on this and i wanted to follow up on it um with you first but this idea of managing your reps i feel like it took me a long time to understand that that was part of having reps and part of my job as a writer with agents and managers um can you speak to that Um, Well, right now I have a manager and a lawyer and um, honestly, like I'm pretty tight with my manager. She's great. And so is my lawyer. And it's uh, like it's it's been a weird like honestly. So I moved here four and a half years ago and I got signed and then I was signed by an agency and then I got my first job and then we fired our agents like the day yeah. the deal memo came in, like the, wow. the manager got me the agent, the agent got me the job and then I had to fire the agent. And so it's been like, and then there's been COVID in the middle of it. So it's honestly, it's just been like a really weird five years to be starting out in this business here. But like, I I think the thing about my first manager was that that relationship didn't give me anything like I wasn't it was making me feel really anxious and not heard and like not like my calls were never returned. And like, I just wanted to hold on to it so badly just to say I had one. And it wasn't helping me like it wasn't helping my mental state. And therefore, it was not helping my writing. And I think like, in retrospect, I would have rather had no rep than a rep who did not like know me or value me or anything like that because now I have a rep where I can like text and just be like did you watch that tv show and like I feel like this person has like a personal stake in my life understands my taste understands what I like and um it's also you know I I I mean just to like touch on this a little bit but it's for me as a woman of color like who's been working in the industry for a long time like it's it's kind of a strange time and that like yeah I started in this business because I loved like you know, young adult TV. And I loved like Babysitter's Club and I loved Clueless. And I just really wanted like girls that looked like me in those shows. Like that's why I wanted to do it. And then it felt like for most of my career, like 
it, that wasn't really even an option. And then I moved here and now it's like a big thing to, to like suddenly like I'm in vogue. And, you know, and so like for one of the things that happens a lot is that I get sent a lot of stuff that's Indian, you know, and I am very proudly Asian American, but I'm also not from India. So like, I like how, like my team really, really gets that. They're like, well, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not just going to be on a list of South Asian writers who get sent everything, you know, from every part in every genre from South Asia. Like they get that, that that's kind of like a delicate balance that I'm trying to find for myself. And I know a lot of people in my position are trying to find that. Um, so that's a very long winded way of saying just like, if you like the person and you like feel safe and comfortable with the person and you don't feel like you have to kind of chase the person around, then, then that's a, that's a great rep to have. Yeah. I think there, there's a lot of great stuff in what you just said. And, and Abdi, you mentioned sort of similar ideas about like defining your career to the people who represent you and helping them understand what it is that you want, even if that changes. Have you had those conversations with your reps? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when I was young, no. And I think that that's a big thing when you're starting out. I think you just feel so lucky to be working at all that you just do whatever people tell you to. So I think in the beginning it was like, well, what are people going to pay me to write? And that's what I write. I wasn't concerned about my voice or what I wanted or who I wanted to be. And, you know, like midway through my career, definitely when I had kids, I was kind of looking at what I did and I had written all these huge studio movies that never got made. So as far as the world was concerned, it didn't matter. I mean, I was paid well, but they didn't exist outside of mm -hmm. a file on my computer. And the few things that got made were not things that reflected my values in any way. And I kind of made a very, I think, concerted decision to, to write. I started writing the books because I found it incredibly hard to get material made that reflected my culture. Like every Iranian script I write still to this day is just immediately a sample. Um, and, and so that's why I did that. And, um, and I think in terms of getting new reps, I would really have to sit them down and explain like what I do, what matters to me, how I spend my time. I think a lot of times I make decisions that are not necessarily the most financially lucrative. <laughs> and that's a good thing to tell a rep. Like if I have free time, I'm going to go write a novel, you know, I'm not going to do like the things that maybe you tell me to do. And I think that there's this constant dance between what the client wants and what the reps want. You have to get on the same page so that they can go out and represent you correctly. And hopefully you build a career that, you know, is both lucrative, but also that you feel really good about when you yeah. look at your work. And that's a, that's a tough thing sometimes. Do they have anything once you started publishing, um, mm -hmm. Were they helpful at all? Do they have anything to do with that part of your career? No. Uh, outside of trying to get them set up as movies or TV shows, no. Mm -hmm. They are very involved in that part of the process. Um, and that's certainly something that I hope will happen someday, that one of them will get made. They've been My books have been optioned. They've never quite seen the light sure. of the day but, um, <laughs> as films or TV shows. But no, not really. I mean... They're very separate mm -hmm. careers. I mean, my literary agents are in New York and it's a different thing. And But yeah. it does, I, I will say one thing is when I finally got staffed for the first time, when I entered that world, I had tried to get staffed before and I had feature credits and TV movie credits and it never seemed that impressive. But when I got my first job, the showrunner was much more interested in my books. And I felt like there was something that differentiated me in terms of being a novelist. And I think there's something there for young writers, too. I've heard so many people get in through playwriting. Mm 
these mm -hmm. days I'm hearing more and more novelists get in through staffing that way. I do think showrunners sometimes love knowing that your brain works that way, that you're a writer who's going to approach things as a novelist as well, or as a playwright as well, that you're bringing a skill because, you know, showrunners are really curating the room and they want people to come in with not only different life experiences, but also different creative modes and ways of thinking. So I think in a lot of ways, the novels have helped me quite a bit in the TV world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Strangely enough. No, it, it absolutely makes sense. Um, and I feel like I've seen this a lot, like you say, in the past few years, especially the last maybe five, even 10 years. Rebecca, I, wa I wanted to ask you about a, sort of a similar question, um, and then we'll start to wrap up. But, you know, looking at the beginning of your career and looking at the last couple of years of your career, it seems like a, a different kind of writer. It seems like your interests have changed or maybe just the opportunities have changed. But I'm curious about that um, inflection point. Um, you know, you, you talked about starting out doing a lot of comedy, doing stand-up, sketch, but then working on adult swim shows. Um, but the last couple of years, we look at stuff like your movie, like Paper Year, like uh, you worked on Dead to Me, mm -hmm. um, and then Guilty Party, which mm -hmm. is not a comedy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about, about moving to these other kinds of writing. Yeah, you know, it's... Um... Uh, very observant of you. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, we change as people. And I think there's also a, a certain amount of me gaining confidence as a, try not to feel foolish saying the word, but as an artist, you know, and as someone who, who wants to, to write and create their own content and, and, and feel like they have something to say and, and, and an actual point of view to, to put out to the world. And, while my initial goal was, yeah, I wanted to like, I did really want to work in like the big sitcom arena and, and new girl, I always equate it to like a graduate school or something, you know, it was three years. I was there for three years. And it was very intense. I learned so much. Um, but it also made me realize, like, if I'm ever going, you know, I, I'm writing Nick and Jess and Schmidt jokes, you know, for, for 20 hours a day. <laughs> felt like we were there at crazy hours, right? It's one of those rooms that I think has a, maybe it's so old now that it's no longer <laughs> the thing people we, know about the show. Yeah, yeah, we've talked a lot show. about it on the Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, so anyhow, it, it, it was like I was burning out doing the thing I loved doing. And yeah. while I was on New Girl, I, I went through a divorce and I just felt like my life was changing and I was experiencing and touching aspects of life that that were motivating me to, to write differently and to put different stories down on paper. And um, and then directing, moving into directing was actually very transformative, too, because you know, there's a reason those gates have been shut for so long, you know, to, to women and people of color. And there's kind of, a, it's cause it's a really fucking good job, right? Like you are really actually in charge of what, of, of how it all comes together, especially of course, in the feature world, it's, it's slightly different in the, in the TV landscape as we all know, but um, yeah. And I, I, I started to get maybe a little sick of jokes I'm coming, I'm coming back around to them. <laughs> I, I am, but I, 
I mean, I don't want anything to be devoid of humor, but I really started to feel like uh, the world opened up when there'd be shows like Transparent or these shows that are like half hour shows, but they're not, they're not trying to make you laugh all the time. They're trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of scoop up all of humanity into sort of one dish. Um, so I found that yeah. actually quite inspiring and and I currently all, all I'm, I'm writing are sort of like hour long limited series that we're developing, you know, so it's 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 very far from from, you know, like a, a new girl model. So and I'm happier with that, to be honest. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see what yeah. you what you do next. <laughs> um, I want to wrap up by asking um, Marion, am I right that uh, Echo is the first show that you have run? Yes, as much as you can run a Marvel show. Sure. It is. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> yes. but within those confines, and I know that's a different conversation for another time and maybe not on microphones, but um, <laughs> <laughs> within those confines, what did you take with you from your previous, previous experiences on Saul and, and some of these other shows that you applied to running your own room? Yeah, it um, it was kind of a crash course, you know, because I came in as a co-EP and then change, that changed uh, a little bit in. So I didn't start there at the ground level, mm. but really like shifting and changing a process to work with deadlines, like Better Call Saul very much uses a brick by brick process where we essentially break each episode three times. You do a uh, sort of a general overall break and then we lay out some arcs and then we go back in and brick by brick. There just simply was not enough time to do it that way. So it was sort of grabbing things um, from like the act, which was a, um, a limited series on Hulu, which we, we broke fairly quickly. So, so taking some of that, um, you know, laying out some tent poles that we more or less stuck with instead mm-hmm. of shifting them around the, the way that we did. So it was really about um, finding a process in the moment that allowed me to get to some deadlines and, um, you know, be a little more flexible than I would have been if, if, you know, if I had my all the time in the world, I would right. have done it a little bit differently. Which, I mean, Saul is really the like exception to that, right? Like you usually don't have all the time in the world. So the way that you wound yes. up doing it seems like the more uh, the more traditional way. Right. Um, all right. Uh, we will end, as we always do, by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones, the rooms that you are currently in, if you're currently in a room? Um, and Ami, let's start with you. Uh, Wednesday. <laughs> Tell me, so, here's the thing. <laughs> Sell me on Wednesday. I, I think she is fucking phenomenal. I really loved you as well. I loved her and you. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, But I don't know, I really enjoyed it. I thought the fashion was great. The look of it was great. I thought the school parts were fun. Like, it was just like a fun, like, you guys all know, like, when you're working a lot, like, I don't want to come home and watch something that, like, requires me to use what's left of my like you know middle-aged brain like I just want to watch something that is like fun and smart and like makes me keep going and and honestly it was it and I she's just she was fantastic for me I just could have watched her you know do anything and I also really enjoy it I will not enjoy it but I watched The Patient recently mm-hmm. which I thought was just a master class I thought that was really really good yeah uh all right you've, you've half sold me the when you mentioned <laughs> The fashions are great. That didn't do it. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> There's some really great crochet in there. Oh, that now I I'm just, in. I'm a big, yeah, I'm a big crocheter. And I was just, no, but it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. All right. Uh, Marion, what are you watching? I 
really liked Severance this year, which I watched mm -hmm. way later than most people. I didn't yeah. watch it until about a month ago. And the other show that I'm watching for the first time that I'm loving is Shameless. Can't what, watch enough. What brought you to Shameless years after it's been canceled or after it ended? I, I was at my parents' house for Thanksgiving and they had it on. And so I watched a couple episodes <laughs> with my parents and I went back to LA and here I am with, with Showtime every night. That's so great. yeah, I'm in. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, Abdi, what are you watching? Oh God. I mean, I'm obviously obsessed with the white Lotus, like every other gay man in the world. Um, <laughs> I love Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, but you know, my favorite thing these days is British, British shows. I'm obsessed with all the British crime shows. I, I couldn't, I mean, there's so many. I watch them all. I love them. Um, what are some standouts the, for you? I mean, this year there was one called Sherwood that I loved and one called Barking Murders that I loved. Um, what is that? Barking Murders was about a gay serial killer. It's incredibly dark. It's amazing. Amazing. Um, they, they, I mean, the best thing is I also go to London. I do a lot of writing in London and I love British actors and I feel like it's such a thrill to see these incredible theater actors that you've seen on stage doing these amazing pieces of theater in, in these mm -hmm. pop boilery crime shows. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, but no, two that stand out to me this year, one is called The Capture that has two seasons. It's on Peacock here in the U.S. It's kind of like British homeland. It's like a paranoid, I love like government conspiracy type shows. Yeah, that's cool. And there's one called um, Everything I Know About Love, which is literally like one of those 90s working title romantic comedies as a show. I'm a big oh old school romantic comedy fan and they don't make those movies anymore. So it's that's like great. watching Notting Hill or Bridget Jones or Sliding Doors, but as a TV show, it's so good. Oh, they really fun. Will, that's... will cancel yeah, those are... <laughs> But at least you have, you have the season. I have season one. Uh, that's great, Rex. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca? I'm also watching The White Lotus. Uh, <laughs> not a gay man, but I also love Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, and I, 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 I'm thankful that she's on our screens all the time now. And I am watching The Vow, this cult show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, mm -hmm. A number of people have mentioned that the past few months, especially. Mm -hmm. um, it's supposed to be great. It's it's good. It's 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 amazing the 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 footage they have because this is a cult that loves to tape itself, mm -hmm. you know. And then the guy who did all the all the filming is left the cult and now has handed over all of his <laughs> all of his footage. So it's un, it seems like unprecedented access to a to like that's kind of community, but it's a little dark too. It's depressing in its own way. Are you watching season two of The Vow? You know, I got I'm not even there yet. You're on season. Okay, I'm still You're on, on season, season one. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I'm taking notes no, here I of only... everything you guys have recommended because I am one of these TV writers that like is perpetually lost in the forest of TV. I don't really know what to watch so i feel like i watch a lot of movies yeah. because maybe because i come from features like yep. i feel like i watch a lot more movies these days and i'm really addicted to my like letterboxed feed and um reading oh uh, bad sisters by the way is another show yeah. that i'm yeah. that i'm really into and we're almost done with but um yeah. yeah but i i feel the same way like i've i've watched a lot more movies this year mm -hmm. or in the past few years than i have tv shows and it's not for lack of great tv shows but 
I don't know, maybe it's just because there is so much. I think, too, I was thinking about the other day where shows now, a lot of shows are an hour long, right? So even the comedies, you know, a show like The Great Mm -hmm. is actually almost an hour long. And it's a commitment, okay? Absolutely. So when I'm starting a new show, I'm like, it's not just, I'm, I'm not just tuning in for 22, 25, 30 minutes. Like, no, that says 55 minutes at the end of the you know, we're, my husband and I are always, you know, we've got a little kid and we're tired and it's like, man, okay, well, if we're going to go 55 minutes, maybe we just do a movie. Maybe we just do 90 minutes yeah. and we, we watch the movie we've always wanted to see and, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I mean, honestly, like last night we started uh, Fleischman is in Trouble, which mm-hmm. is great, but mm-hmm. the only way we could do it was to say, let's watch two episodes. So it's right. as if we are right. sitting down to watch a movie. Yeah, and now you're in. I have to, and then, there's yeah. some movies that are so long now. Like I remember when The Irishman came out, it took, like, it took us like a oh, week yeah. to finish. Oh, <laughs> that was a good one to watch over the course of a week. I also did I the same say, thing. I was like, I didn't mind yeah. it. I didn't mind it you broken up into mo- bits. Yeah. We're watching movies in Quibbies. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> TV shows yeah. all at once. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank kidding. you all so much for chatting today please come back anytime it was such a delight to talk with you thanks ben thank you thank you thank you you, ben bye forever dog this has been a forever dog production executive produced by brett boehm joe cilio and alex ramsey for more original podcasts please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.